You're listening to Strictly Business Podcast with Lindsay Williams. I received a piece of work a couple of days ago, and the headline is, The 10 Most Thought-Provoking Client Questions I Have Received This Year. The person I, in this case, is Michael Power, Investment Strategist at 91 in Cape Town. Michael, I love this sort of interactive feedback, because the clients are obviously the lifeblood of 91, and there's some really good questions here. We're going to do five of the 10 today, and then the last five will go out to next week. So let's start with question number one, and it's an obvious one. Walk me through 2020's stock market? Not an easy question to answer. Indeed not. And I think that because the US stock market is still 56% of the all country world index, you can't really answer this question without really just focusing on on the US. And it's been a yo-yo year, as it's been a yo-yo year for everywhere, but particularly in the United States. We have to remember that when we came into 2020, it was the longest growth period on record, but the yield curve had inverted in 2019, potentially setting up 2020 for some sort of accident. Um, well, the accident came in the form of a tsunami, COVID-19, and the Fed was forced to liquidize the market as never before. Following on from my favorite meme of the year, which comes from Yuval Noah Harari, that pandemics fast forward history. What we've seen is that long-term trends have matured overnight and separated the sheep from the goats. So, you know, tech has won big and banks and energy or especially old energy have lost big as have have retail. In fact, as we know, the magnificent eight, Amazon, Apple, Facebook, Google, Microsoft, Netflix, NVIDIA and Tesla basically account for pretty much all of the market performance this year. Uh, There's been huge fallout in other areas like uh, uh, entertainment, restaurants, Um, And one of the interesting uh, ones which I hadn't seen coming is commercial real estate. Um, Of course, anything that was working from home won big. But I think that's only telling part of the story. I think there's something even bigger at work here. It's probably too soon to be absolutely definitive. But I think the U.S.-centric financial ship has, like the Titanic, hit an iceberg. Um, And we're beginning to see this in the form of a leaky DXY dollar index, which is 9, 10% off its 2020 highs. What I think is happening is that capital is abandoning many ships seeking capital preservation vessels, much more than growth. And this is especially so when bonds don't offer a safe harbor. The Magnificent Eight then have become the main lifeboat, as indeed did gold. And we're now facing this slightly uh, difficult last quarter of the year when there could be a second wave uh, for COVID-19. It's definitely building in Europe and it's showing signs of building in the United States. And there's some preliminary signs of a stalling uh, economic recovery, more so again in Europe than in the US, but in the US too. Um, And then all, of course, all of this is happening in the midst of uh, of a game-changing election. So it's not surprising that 2020 has been a a yo-yo year. No, in fact, the last two months may be even more of a yo-yo than the first 10 months. So uh, something to... I don't know if I should say look forward to, but something to be aware of. Question number two, could Trump win again? Goodness me, that's more difficult than the first one. He could, but the odds have moved decisively against him. I think a combination of a one, two, three set of punches a week ago when the tax revelations came out on Monday, the the Cleveland debate was a debacle for him on the Wednesday. And then on the Friday, we learned that POTUS and Flotus had uh, contracted COVID-19. Um, just uh, really took the stuffing out of his campaign. The, of course, the, the, the infection probably came from what a great Marine friend of mine calls the Rose Garden Cluster, and I'll leave you to fill in the other word. Mm-hmm. Um, the reality is is that his campaign has not been the same ever since. And 
in the last week, we started to see the polls starting to move fairly decisively uh, in Biden's favor. And of course, in the last week, we've seen COVID-19 rebuild. It's uh, running at around 60,000 new daily infections a day. And for me now, the, the question isn't so much could Trump win again is what happens when Biden wins? Because we then have two and a half months of Trump still being president before the 20th of, of January next year. I think that there's all manner of uh, opportunities for constitutional crises in this period. Trump will probably be forced to concede if he, if he does lose, but it's going to be messy. You know, the count is going to be messy. I think that even before then, even before the, the 5th, uh, 3rd of, of November, We've got another debate. We've got possibly more October surprises. And the one I'm watching, which is, again, um, on Trump's side of the equation, is I think Cyrus Vance's investigation into Trump's tax affairs may still yet reveal tax fraud before the 3rd of November. You have to remember that in the end, it, Al Capone was brought down by not paying his taxes. Obviously, we've got the issue of the Supreme Court. Um, I think we're going to see Amy Coney Barrett um, confirmed, but I think this is going to set up a, a potentially um, fight over the Supreme Court's uh, structure next year. I don't think there's going to be another relief package as much as Pelosi and uh, Mnuchin might be trying to get one, although well, I'm not sure Pelosi really is. And I think we are going to see some softness in the data coming out. Unemployment wasn't great last month. Consumer confidence is faltering. And the stock market's starting to look a little bit shaky in the sense that uh, if there's no, uh, as it were, uh, um, uh, super drug that comes from the Fed, uh, rather in the same way as, as Trump was given his little cocktail, um, hmm. I'm not sure how the market's going to stand up. So uh, I don't think he's going to win. Um, and I think, you know, the, the definite people ask me, so what's the definition of a landslide in Biden's favor. Well, it's not winning 400 plus seats in the Electoral College. It's winning the Senate as well. And yeah. there's a chance of that happening. I had a good chat with a friend of mine who's now in back in Colorado this morning. And he says, look, he says on the ground, we're beginning to, to really feel as if there's something fairly massive taking place here. Uh, interestingly, last night, uh, Ben Sass, who's a Republican senator from Nebraska, who's not up for re-election this year, broke ranks and started to criticize um, uh, Trump rather heavily. And I think he's essentially throwing his hat in to be the leader of the Democratic Party um, after Trump loses. So um, the way I'm looking at it at the moment, a blue wave is possible. and We could end up with um, both the, uh, the Senate uh, and the House and the, and the uh, White House, of course, uh, all Democratic controlled going into next year. Goodness me, Michael, you mentioned the word cocktail in reference to Donald Trump's medication, but the, the cocktail of ingredients that you've just laid out there, extraordinary. And I wonder what it's all going to taste like when we take a sip of it. Number three, why did China not suffer more? And there was an astonishing story in the last few days. A few cases emerged in one particular city. And within 24 hours, they had tested 3 million people, Michael. That is astonishing. Yeah, and in, 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 in uh, 96 hours, they've done 9.8 million. It's amazing. But anyway, let's look at it from the Chinese economy perspective. Why haven't they suffered more? Why have they bounced back so aggressively? Well, I suppose the, the, the question behind the question here is, or at least the comment behind the question is that, you know, they gave us the virus, so they need to you know, suffer more. Mm. Well, they haven't. Uh, it's probably going to be the only G20 economy to grow in, the, in 2020, albeit by a relatively small amount, maybe 1%, 2%. But uh, unquestionably, they control the virus much more effectively, as your example illustrates. They come down hard and fast on flare-ups, as your example illustrates. 
And something which is quite difficult for Westerners to understand or people of a Western persuasion, China has always, throughout the whole history of China, seen the rights of the collective being more important than those of the individual. And it's not something which is easy to sit in the libertarians of, of Michigan, for instance. They just can't understand how this could possibly be so. The government in China spoke with one voice, and interestingly, in a way, it, it, it hit the Chinese economy at a, at a more opportune time in the sense that it's less driven by the consumer and more by the producer. Not so for most Western economies, of course. The resulting narrative in China over the course of the year has been to put production before consumption, and as I summarize it, to put factories before tattoo parlors. They got producers back into factories before, as wanted to happen in the United States, getting consumers back into tattoo parlors. China also made sure their monetary and fiscal responses were coordinated and targeted accordingly. The People's Bank of China didn't do a Fed. Yes, they kept the money market engine well-oiled, but they didn't flood it. Interest rates have remained positive in real terms. Um, Bond yields likewise. And again, I think it's important that borrowed money costs something in real terms. Otherwise, as I'll come to in a minute, um, you're starting to play around with the essence of what capitalism is. Central government in China focused on their stimulus being directed at infrastructure, not one-time consumption, assuming, and it was in most cases the right assumption, that uh, individuals in China with their high levels of savings could fall back on those savings more than government, at least for a short term. Of course, it also helped that China basically dominated the global supply of PPE ventilators and antibiotics when the virus took hold in the United States in February, it was discovered that 90% plus of all America's antibiotics came from China. China's external trade surplus as a result has actually risen during the course of this year. And the e-commerce giants have stepped into the breach and really made the whole process of transitioning to a more, dare I say, digital virtual economy much easier. The result has been that um, China's recovery has been V-shaped. Internal air travel uh, at the moment is higher than it was a year ago. Um, I think there's some spillover effect because to some extent, Japan, Taiwan, Korea, Vietnam uh, have actually uh, fared better than most, although they've, in in many cases, Taiwan in particular, uh, because they've managed the vaccine better as well. In other words, in a line, in China, it's back to business as usual. And and this means that they're continuing with all their other programs. And we're seeing some some evidence of that even in the last 24 hours. But China's capital markets reform program is continuing apace. Um, and we're about to get the 14th five-year plan from Xi Jinping uh, later this month at the party conference. And Xi Jinping was, uh, was in Shenzhen over the last 48 hours. And it's basically started to sketch out a fairly spectacular vision for what is the future of of China in the space of technology. So, uh, yeah, I mean, they're they're just in a different space at a different time with a different set of priorities. And um, as a result, they didn't suffer nearly as much as as most people in the West have done. Indeed. So we've got a V-shaped recovery, the fabled V-shaped recovery. But this is not a fable. It's a reality. And I wonder if the 14th five-year plan will be tweaked somewhat or is being tweaked because of what has gone on in the what is going on in the Western world. It's very interesting in how politically driven it will be as well as economic driven. Okay, question number four now, Michael. Are Western sovereign bonds history? I think there's $15 trillion worth of bonds that are yielding negativity, negative yields. It's about that. Mm. I mean, a slightly different way of looking at it, but it is a global measure. 70% of global sovereign debt now has a negative real yield. Mm. That's astonishing. Um, so, so what's the course, story? A huge portion of that uh, is in the West. Um, in the US and the UK, we've got negative real 
Uh, in Europe and Japan, we've got negative nominal. And the reality is that, yes, um, sovereign bonds in this context, if you mean no yield for a long time, are history. You see, the thing is that this comes at a time when governments need to borrow huge amounts of money, but they don't want to pay for the money they borrow. Uh, democracy is demanding consumption support. So the only way of actually making all of this work is let the government borrow at nothing, which is essentially what's happening. And we are now seeing the states, states, not just the US, but everywhere borrowing as much as they possibly can. So it seems and it's almost nothing. In fact, yeah, the, 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 the latest tally on what the, uh, the, the pandemic is going to cost the United States is $16 trillion, which is close to one times GDP. Yeah, I can't even begin to comprehend uh, probably, that sort of number. Probably about 80% of GDP. And you see, for me, the real problem, the knock-on effects of this, and I'm putting on my, I'm a CFA, but I'm not, um, but charter holders will know what I'm talking about, uh, is that this means that new capital investment is being subsidized by negligible costs of capital, thus intensifying zombification of the Western industrial landscape. Uh, weak companies survive on life support of in- artificially low debt. Um, and this goes to the heart of the capitalist dynamic that Schumpeter so well described being creative destruction. If there's no destruction and therefore the release of capital that was previously tied up in unproductive activities, there is no creation because that capital can't be redirected into the new activities. And I think that's a real problem which the vast majority, dare I say, as uh, traditional economists haven't yet grasped. It's also doing uh, these low, low yields is killing traditional private banks as we know them. I mean, we've all seen what's happened to Deutsche Bank share price over the last, you know, and it was already falling even before the pandemic, but it's now, uh, you know, scraping along the bottom. And then on top of this, we have aging dynamics in, in the West, uh, obviously worse in some places than others. Um, and of course, as soon as you, like I am now, moving towards retirement, um, you start to think about income more than capital gain. And traditionally, that meant you switch to bonds. But of course, bonds aren't yielding anything longer. So um, uh, you've got this real problem, this real dilemma as to how do you generate income from assets, from safe assets. And it's not easy to do at the moment. I think at a, at a bigger level, and if you're still in the savings game, um, it's now starting to range, raise profound questions about traditional asset allocation. I mean, would you as a saver hold a nominally negative yielding German Bund? This is madness. The the 60-40 asset allocation benchmark, 60% equities, 40% bonds, is being jettisoned because it's simply not yielding enough, Uh, which begs the question, uh, is the new risk-free rate the yield on a basket of high-quality corporate credit? And I think if you're within the European context or within the United States context, it probably is. Sitting in South Africa, you might actually say, actually, it's cash in a strengthening currency, um, where I basically cash in on an annual basis uh, the capital appreciation and use that as a substitute for yield. It's a complicated calculation, but that's probably what you're being forced to do. I think what we are seeing now, and the whole thing is wrapped up in this theory called modern monetary theory, which has been dismissed by some people as the magic money tree, um, it basically is starting to question whether if government debt issuances are quickly monetized, the axiomatic role that government bonds have played in determining the, the foundation upon which the cost of capital is based is undermined. And although this is a radio interview, I have a wonderful picture on my slide here of a very famous scene from Goldfinger where <laughs> Mr. Bond is about to be divided in half, starting from between his legs 
by a laser beam. (laughs) And uh, Goldfinger is saying to Mr. Bond, no, Mr. Bond, I expect you to die. And and I sort of sense that's sort of what's, uh, that's the prospect that's facing the bond market as we know it today. Such a great scene, actually. Michael, you were talking about demographics, and that is something that's going to come out of this pandemic, a shift in future demographics, because I notice the German population has fallen for the first time in a decade, and that is something for longer-term investors that are just getting into the investment game now in their 20s or something really need to pay attention to. Okay. The final question of the um, first half of this broadcast is the following. Whither or whither, with an H or without an H, the US dollar? Now, that's been on a slide. It's, been, it's gone from 106 to 120, essentially, back at 117 versus the euro at the moment. What do you think of that reserve currency? Look, I think within the context of a Western world, the US dollar is still there to play, although there may be cyclical gyrations against the euro, the pound and the yen. But as I'm going to come to in the second part of answering this question, uh, we're moving into a world where that's not uh, everything that is uh, out there. I mean, the U.S. has been living on borrowed time for a long time. It has a structural current account deficit, which has only grown to around minus 3% of GDP during the course of this year. The result is that the yields on currency-adjusted treasuries have actually been negative over the course of this year, so hardly attractive to foreigners to store their cash in the United States. Even currency-adjusted equity returns haven't been great in the United States. So um, uh, foreigners looking, especially in the, in the sort of the Western capital bubble, looking at the United States, are not seeing a particularly attractive space at the moment, either in treasuries or bonds. Meanwhile, um, the enemy of bonds, um, inflation is starting to, to, to edge up. Um, it's some 3% in rising. Although the Fed has basically embraced MMT and, and said that it will live with higher inflation, which, again, is not great for um, uh, particularly people who are looking at bonds, but, but, but even to some extent uh, equity. Yeah. Then on top of this, we have this deficit, massive ballooning deficit in the, in the United States. It's, it's going to be about 15 percent of GDP uh, this year. Obviously, that's a special case, but there are no end of big deficits in sight, even or especially if Team Biden wins. Um, so when I am faced with this question, and I am faced with it all the time, you know, will the dollar weaken? I always reply by saying, against which currency? Yes. And usually the answer is going to come out, the pound, the euro, the yen. Well, yeah, it's 9% down on the euro this year, 6% down on the, on the yen. But interestingly, it's 6% down on the, the Chinese renminbi this year. And I always think that weakness against the old world's currency as being cyclical and weakness against the new world's currency as being structural. So I think we are beginning to see a shift. It's slow. It won't happen overnight. And don't think I'm calling the end of the dollar by next Tuesday afternoon. I'm not. But I am beginning to say that something is shifting. And the Chinese are a little uneasy about this. They've actually put the brakes on further appreciation over the course of the last couple of days. But nevertheless, they are preparing for this day, which is why they're overhauling their capital market. They're removing blockages, held back foreign investment in bonds and equities. And they are paving the way for the internationalization of the RMB, perhaps, interestingly, in a digital form. Tactically, then, yes, the U.S. dollar may get weaker cyclically, but not forever, because the ECB and the BOJ will step in and and stop it. Um, Indeed, as has the Bank of China. Strategically, however, when China permits further appreciation of the RMB against uh, the dollar, 
you will see the U.S. dollar uh, weaken against those Chinese bloc currencies as well, most of the currencies of Asia. And I think that the, the number one sort of, as it were, piece of evidence that you've got that something strange is going on at the moment is what's been happening to gold. It's unsettled. It's been outperforming even the decline of the U.S. dollar. So I think this is potentially telling us that there is a coming shift away from a U.S. dollar-centric world. So, as I say, there are two parts to this question. There is the cyclical part, and then there is the structural part. The cyclical part, well, you can play games with euro-dollar, euro-yen, yen-dollar. But the reality, the big question out there at the moment is ultimately dollar Just on that gold point, I notice that every time the dollar weakens by, say, 0.2%, the gold price goes up three-quarters to to 1%, something like that. It is so sensitive to any dollar weakness. Michael, that concludes the first five of the 10 most thought-provoking client questions that you've received this year. The second five will be forthcoming. The views and opinions expressed in these podcasts are those of Lindsay Williams and various contributors and do not reflect the policy, position or opinion of any other agency, organization, employer or company associated with strictlybusinesspodcast.com. Assumptions made on the analyses are not reflective of the position of any other entity other than the speaker or the author. And since we are critically thinking human beings, these views are always subject to change, revision and rethinking at any time. Please do not hold us to them in perpetuity.